You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, church. So for those of you who are online, you have no idea why the rest of us are chuckling, but the kind of room is starting to get into the song has become a staple of our series. Hey, we're really glad you're here visiting with us today. Real quick, let me, let me cast a little vision that'll actually connect into today's message. And so <clears throat> recently I was talking with one of our members and he was telling me about um, a, a, his son who at work was talking to a guy, a guy was coming in to look for advice. And he just boldly looked at the guy and said, you know, the thing is you really just need Jesus. You need to come to church with me. And uh, he was super proud of his son and um, he's like just being bold in his faith. Well, here's the thing. Yesterday we had almost 2,500 people, probably over 2,500 people on our campus. Now I know for a fact, a chunk of them were Kingsway people. That's great. I also know for a fact, some of them were other churches, people visiting with us. In fact, it was about three or four years ago at our trunk or treat that I met Luke Proctor, who's now the lead pastor at Plainfield Christian Church, and he's a super good friend of mine. It's because he was here. It was the year we had to move it in the building because of the weather, and uh, he was wearing a Colorado shirt. I lived in Colorado. I just went up to him. I assumed he was a guest and just said, hey, man, welcome to Kingsway. Did you visit Colorado or did you live there? He started talking to me. We'd talk for a while in line. we said say goodbye. He went online to write a really nice email, and so he looked up the lead pastor, saw my picture, and went, dude, you're the guy I was talking to. And now he's one of my closest friends. I say that because while we know there are other churches who visit, including other pastors, we also know there is a large percentage of people in our community who come to the event. And some of them are your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, whatever it might be. So I just want to encourage you to, to not be afraid to tie a string to that. It's okay. Should God create the opportunity? And somebody says, hey, I was at um, Trunk or Treat on Saturday at your church. Just say, you know what, that's awesome. You want to come with us sometime? I'll sit with you. I'll meet you at the door. I'll help you checking your kids. Whatever it is, because that boldness often leads to transformation. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into today's message because what you're going to see today is a swift, swift encouragement and kick in the pants from God for all of us to reconcile where there's brokenness. And the reason that's important is this, God wants to reconcile with us. So if you're visiting with us, maybe you were a trunk or treat, what we need you to know is above anything else, all the things we're gonna talk about and share or whatever, and if you get lost in any of the stories, it's fine. The big picture of everything is God wants a relationship with you. That's why we do trunk or treat, because we wanna build bridges to people who need Jesus Christ. All right, now let me lead into the message with that, with this question. Have you ever messed up really bad and just didn't know how to fix it? Now, this is a good time to keep your elbows to yourself. <laughs> Do not elbow your spouse and say, remember yesterday? Okay, so I'm gonna use a story, but I was like about my son's age. My kids are between eight and 13. I was somewhere between 12 and 14. Yesterday was my son's birthday. We came back trunk or treat, we celebrated, and I, I was just going through my head last night. What happened was, if you went to the top of my parents' steps, if you go to the right, the first door in front of you is the bathroom. That was my sister's and my bathroom that we used. If you go to the left, you step into their bedroom and not too far from there was their bathroom. For some reason or another, I don't remember why, I was just inside their door and nature called. And I chose, instead of going the equal distance to our bathroom, that I would go the distance necessary to go to their bathroom. And at the time, no one was home. So I wasn't like worried about going into the bathroom and running into anything awkward. Instead, I went in and the toilet seat was down. And I just thought, I'm a sniper, not a problem. 
I'm glad the three of you thought that was funny. And apparently this day, I didn't bring my sniper rifle. I brought my shotgun. <clears throat> and I washed my hands and I left the bathroom. Thought nothing of it. End of story. A couple hours later, because I got home before my dad in school at that time. A couple hours later, my dad comes home. Uh, my sister, she had something after school. She wasn't there. I don't remember where my mom was. And my dad goes upstairs to use the bathroom, change clothes. And I hear from the top of the steps, Matt, can you come up here? Now, the tone of his voice said, I did something wrong but I don't know what it is. And my mind is going through the laundry list. Oh, does he know about this? Did he find out about this? Did the teacher call? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You had sons, right? I get to the top of the steps. My dad's in there and he says, did you use our bathroom today? And I knew immediately the answer was no. <laughs> and I said, no. And he said, Matt, you don't need to lie about it. Did you use my toilet today? And I can't for the life of me figure out why I need to say no. I only know that from the tone of his voice, the answer is no. And now that I've said no, I need to carry no all the way to the finish line. And he says, Matt, your mother sits down when she uses the bathroom. Your sister's not here. Did you have anybody here after school? I said, no. And he said, okay. Since I haven't gone to the bathroom yet, can you explain the toilet seat to me? To which I said, nope. <laughs> now, I knew I was lying. I knew it. But I didn't know how to make it right. Once I had messed up, and once I covered it up, I didn't know how to fix and the more times he asked me, again, it wasn't like I felt like I could suddenly just say, you're right, Dad. What's he gonna do? He's gonna be mad for a second. He's gonna tell me not to do this. He's gonna tell me to lift the seat and if something happens to clean up my mess, which is exactly everything he said anyway. But when I walked away, I walked away angry. I don't know who he thinks he is. He blamed me for things. I don't know. Maybe he did. He doesn't remember. He's getting older, you know. Now, the reason I tell that story is it's a silly and a funny story. And I did say to the cameras, in case, Dad, you watch online, you watch YouTube, this will be the service. I lied to you. 30 years ago, I lied to you, and I'm sorry. Now, the reason why this story is funny is because it's not that big of a deal. But what if we're not talking about uh, toilet seats? What if we're talking about much bigger, much more serious issues? That's what we're going to see in today's text. I don't have time to bring everybody up to speed on all the things, but you need to go back and listen to anything that sparks curiosity in you. So we have two brothers. The older brother is a guy named Esau, and by older, I mean he was born first. And then his younger brother, Jacob. And so the big deal about this is there were two major things that were supposed to come to Esau, something called the birthright and something called the blessing. The birthright was just the physical thing that whoever was the oldest son in the family had the responsibility to take care of everybody, and they were given a double portion of the inheritance, and that was how they took care of everybody. Whatever was left over at the end, they got to keep for themselves and their family. It was generational wealth. The blessing is a spiritual thing that we'll talk a little bit more about in a few weeks, but we don't have time to go super deep on it, but it's this thing that's been handed down to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and now to Jacob. And the thing is, Jacob tricked Esau out of both the birthright and the blessing. And Esau's livid, so he has said, I'm going to kill you. So Jacob goes and runs away to his mom's suggestion to her brother's house many, many, many miles away in Paddan Aram. And he gets there and he marries two sisters. That's another story we talked about in the past, don't have time to cover today. 
and he ends up having children with their servants. So he's got two wives, two concubines, and a slew of children. But now in Genesis 31, God comes to Jacob and says this, then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. A couple things. First of all, the reason this is terrifying is because Esau, who is a hunter, a man of the field, it says, he's already said, I'm going to kill you, Jacob. Now, we're at least 20 years in the future, minimum 20 years in the future. And God is telling him, I want you to go back and face your greatest fear. But God didn't just send him back. He sent him back with a promise. I am with you. And if you aren't familiar with your Bible, those words may sound a lot like something Jesus said. Remember, just before he goes up into heaven and the disciples are gathered on the top of a hill and Jesus says, I want you to go make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely, what is it? I am with you. This phrase that Jesus is saying, even though you can't see me, that doesn't mean I'm not there. I am active, present, engaged with you, working things out for your good and my glory in the everyday, right here, right now. And that's what God is saying to Jacob. So we have a question for our hero, Jacob, in the story. Will he obey? The next chapter starts this way. Jacob also went on his way. So the answer is yes, he's gonna obey. I'll give you a little snippet of, of, of foreshadowing here, but what we're gonna see is he obeys mostly, mostly. There's a little bit of flesh mixed in there, but Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. Now, a couple things. I, I went and looked up, this, this fascinated me. I'm like, what does it mean that angels of God met him? And uh, I came away with nothing. Basically, nobody knows. Nobody knows what Jacob saw. Nobody knows what Jacob experienced, but it's important because I say this all the time. When you read your Old Testament, look for Jesus in the story. Either the character or what they're going through or something they said, not every time, but often points us to Jesus, which is why we come away with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds <clears throat> of fulfilled prophecies in Jesus that are literally impossible unless the God of the universe is writing this book and it's not a man-made book. Now, that's powerful because this here directly connects to Jesus. If you remember on the night that he's arrested, when he is facing imminent death, he goes into the garden, kneels down, he's stressed out, he's anxious, he starts to pray, and it says in Luke, which we'll look at later next year, it says God sent angels to minister to him. And I believe it's Hebrews, says angels are ministering spirits. We don't know exactly how to understand or explain angelic figures, but I do know and believe with all my heart, they are real. And God has sent them in this moment to minister to Jacob. And he sees it and gives God the glory. And what we should take away from that, even though I have questions about what he experienced, what we should take away is this. If God leads you to it, then God will lead you through it. And that's a confidence, right? That's your next tattoo, or at least the cover on your next cell phone or your next social media post, right? If God leads you to something, he will lead you through it. That doesn't mean it won't be hard. It doesn't mean it won't be painful. It just means that he will be with you. 
So here's Jacob's grand plan. Chapter 32, verse 3. So Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you're to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban, that's his uncle, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, male and female servants, and now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may, that I may find favor in your eyes. So Jacob's grand plan is even though God has set him with you and even though God has sent angels to minister to him, now he's sending these messengers ahead to prime the pump, right? I need to test the ground and find out where Esau is. So, so I'm gonna be obedient and I'm gonna go, but when I go, I'm still not sure how it's all gonna work out. So God says he's with me and he's told me to go, so I'm gonna go, but ah! So as best as I can figure this out, I might want to test the waters just a little bit. And then he says this, says this phrase, my Lord. That's an interesting phrase. We basically have two options. Option number one, Jacob is manipulating Esau. By calling him my Lord, this isn't a reference to him as God. That's not what it means. It's hard for us in America where we don't have lords. We tend to have uh, presidents or governors or CEOs or whatever it is. But we don't have lords. But you may notice throughout much of history, there has been things like lords or kings or people with authority over other people. When Jacob's saying this, he's not saying, you are my God. We know that Jesus Christ is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, meaning of all the authorities that have ever existed in the world, he's higher than all of them. But what he's doing here is this, the other option. He's taking a position of humility. He's taking a position of lowliness. He's saying, I cheated you, I stole from you, I deceived you, I ripped you off, but I'm putting myself below you, beneath you. I'm not coming as one with authority and power. I'm coming with one who is humble. And see, that's the key to everything. Christian leaders, theologians, scholars, pastors have been telling us for thousands of years, this is not new, that the biggest problem all of us have is not greed or pride or lust or any selfishness, the biggest problem that all of us have is pride. Take all those other things in that big list of like Bible vices, all those other things are up here. Pride is the root of all of them. That's why C.S. Lewis says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, all that are mere flea bites in comparison it was through pride that the devil became the devil. In fact, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation, in every family since the world began. Just sit on that for a second. About six weeks ago or so, we were in Florida, and we were staying at our good friend, Kingsway member, uh, Patty Beavers, 
little house. And the last day, I was running around. I was running all these errands and, and stopping all these places. We had to, you know, do the towels and do the sheets and go to the laundromat. And I was taking things back to the store we, did, we bought didn't need and yada, yada, yada. And uh, I couldn't find anything on the radio to listen to. I found Spanish radio, but I, I speak barely enough Spanish to order food and get to the bathroom. And so it was fun for a while trying to make up what they were saying with my family. We were laughing and joking about it, but I have no idea. So Spanish radio was unhelpful, and I couldn't find any sports radio. We're 45 minutes south of Tampa, and you couldn't find any sports radio. And so the only channel I could find was a Catholic spirituality channel. And so I'm listening to it as I'm in and out of the car and making these drives to different places and getting lost, turning around, the whole thing. And they brought on this day a spiritual father, some spiritual director of some sort. I don't know his name. I don't think about him. I can't give anybody credit. So I'm quoting this out of my head. This is important, though, because I remember in and out of these trips, people are calling in, and they're talking about different things, the different vices, different struggles they've had, some with success, some looking for answers. And when I got back in the car in the one moment, and I turned the radio back on, I heard him say this profound thing, and it's been eating at me for six weeks. So here you go. It's your turn. It can eat at you. He said, what if, what if God is allowing other less significant sins to remain in your life? because he really wants to deal with something deeper and more devastating. And he said, you know, what, what if your struggles with lust or what if your struggles with selfishness or what if your struggles with deception or what if your struggles with whatever it is, greed or generosity, what if God has not removed those yet because your bigger issue, the one that really has the potential to destroy your soul and your relationships is your pride. And so God is letting this day because he's trying to like a megaphone yell, this is a big deal and it must be dealt with. I remember when he said that last part, I was sitting in the little driveway outside the house, my family frantically cleaning and packing and waiting for me as we could load the car, drive to the airport. And I'm just sitting there listening to it. And God's been using that in me for the last six weeks. Because here I am at 46 years old and, and a pastor and a spiritual director for others, and there's still things. I'm like, why is that still a thing in my life? And God has been revealing to me, perhaps, Matt, because you have not dealt with the deeper, bigger issue all the way yet. Which is why it's important that Peter says, humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. This word for humble, I went and looked it up. And regardless of what the Greek word is, that's not important. What's important is the definition. In this context, in Greek, the word humble means to literally lay all of you into the lap of God. And so that you're placing all of you in his hands and entrusting he's gonna take care of it. That's so terrifying. Now, here's what goes to our head. I can do that if I get the end result, right? X plus Y equals Z. So I can lay myself in God's lap as long as everything changes just like I want it to, and the end result is everything is restored and I'm happy. It's like reading the book of Job. It's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, but boom, it's resolved. I can read the book in an hour, right? And everything gets resolved in an hour. God, I'm all in, I'm with you. But then Peter says, in due time. That means it may not happen right away. And that means... You can't suddenly take back up your pride. That's it. I'm done with you. I'm tired of this. No way. I quit. No, 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 no. You got to take a position of humility all the way to the end. And in due time, whatever that means in God's eyes, <laughs> a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. So it could be a while. He will lift you up. 
And let's take a look at Jacob now and how this plays out. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Why would you need to bring 400 men? Unless you had some fighting business to do. And that's exactly what goes through Jacob's mind. And now he's terrified. I have sent my messengers. I've tried to prime the pump. I've tried to tell my brother I'm coming. I've literally taught them. Literally, if you look, he tells each set of servants along the way, everybody tell them the same thing. Everybody tell them the same thing. My Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord. Like Esau is here. He's coming with humility. He's coming with humility. He's coming with humility. But here's the problem. Humility is terrifying because it places you at the mercy of the offended party. I mean, if, 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 if humility were easy, we'd all do it, right? But when you are truly coming into a moment to own whatever it is you've done and, and to bring yourself to say, I messed up, when that moment comes, it's like you get to choose the response next. And this is so hard. In fact, we see that in Jacob. Take a look, 32, verse seven. In great fear and distress. Don't just repass that quickly. I mean, there's, there's like, what, five words there? But those words have significant weight and meaning. I'm guessing Jacob was a bit anxious. Jacob was probably had a severely upset stomach. He was stressed out. He didn't sleep well the night before. In fact, he wrestled with God all night long right before this. We talked about that a few weeks ago. But Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought, is if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Now, part of what he's doing is just strategy, right? I'm gonna send all these things in front first, my servants and, and all the cattle and animals that I have. A bunch of those are a gift for Esau. And then I'm gonna put my family and I'm gonna go at the front of my family. But then this happens. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Uh-oh. That's the moment of truth. So he divided his children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in the front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. And he himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Two things real quick. We will deal with this just slightly more next week. Not, not a lot more, but what you need to see is the order because that's what's important. Jacob goes first because he's trying to be a man, right? But then he puts his, his servants, Zilhah and Bilhah, I think, Zilpah and Bilhah, I think I'm saying that right, and their kids, and then he puts Leah, his second favorite wife, and her sons, and then he puts Rachel and his favorite son, Joseph. And that is a huge part of what happens in the rest of Genesis. So later, when he also gives Joseph this technicolor dream coat, it's not just that event that makes the brothers hate Joseph. We'll talk about that next week. It's all of this. It's been ongoing for years. Daddy doesn't care about me like he likes them. This is where Jacob, he's becoming a man of God slowly. But the bigger thing here I want you to see is that he bowed down to the ground seven times. This would be uh, prostrate. I don't know if I can do this. The cameras will get me. But he would have been, in the very least, like this, most likely completely laid out on the ground. Now, the number seven is super significant. I tell you this all the time. When you come to Bible numbers, oftentimes, you don't just read them, you weigh them. 
And what that means is uh, the number seven, I believe he did do this seven times. I'm not trying to say he didn't. But the Bible tells us the number seven over and over and over again because the number seven has meaning. The number seven literally stands for like wholeness or completeness. It's his way of saying to Esau, I am completely and wholly surrendered to you. You have the right to deal with me however you should choose. And his hope is by laying prostrate like that on the ground, onto the ground. What he's hoping is that Esau won't take out a sword and chop off his head. He has the right to do that. He has placed himself in a position of humility and accepting whatever comes his way. And that is the biblical mode of humility. Our example is Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to attain to, but instead offered himself in humble service to God as a servant. And it's radical because in America, this is not how we are taught to deal with things. So what's gonna happen? Verse four, when Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him, he threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. <laughs> One of them out of joy, the other out of relief. Okay, it doesn't say that. All right. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and the children. <gasps> Who are these with you? He asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. This is just a, a coming together moment. It's been at least 20 years since these two have seen each other. And the last time they had any interaction, Jacob stole and cheated and lied and deceived and Esau had threatened to kill. And Esau is elated. Oh, you have wives, you have children. Look, God has blessed you. And, and Jacob's like, eh, not so sure yet. He's still got 400 guys back there. And Esau asked in verse eight, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds that I met along the way? Like these people you sent towards me. And Jacob said, to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Do you see what a powerful moment this is? Esau had the right, he had the option, he had the ability. He could have killed him. And he said, look, I don't need your stuff. That's in the past between us. Now, we're not focusing today on forgiveness. We're actually going to do that in a few weeks when we look at Jacob's son, Joseph. That's why I wanted to separate these two messages. So there's two sides of this coin, right? What we got to get right and what do we do when other people are coming to us? But Jacob's response is, no, please, please, please. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob assisted, Esau accepted. There are two critical actions when you have wronged somebody else. And we see in this story, and I want to apply for you today, because the question is not just, hey, how do we share Bible stories, but what do you do with the Bible story? And here it is. The first one is repentance, and the second one is restitution. Let's deal with the first one first, repentance. Repentance is the act of turning away from the offensive behavior. Literally, the word repent is a military term, and it means an about face. So if those of you in the military, that makes sense to you, right? I was going this direction, now I'm going this direction. So the moment it becomes obvious in your marriage or the moment it becomes obvious with your parents or the moment your kids reveal or your boss or your friend or your coworker, your neighbor, whomever it might be, that you are doing something offensive, the first step is to turn away from the offensive behavior and actions, to actually repent, 
Like you have to, in your mind, say, I now believe that way of doing things is evil. That way of doing things is wrong. That way of doing things is displeasing to you, and I don't want to do it because it hurts you, it offends you, it severs the relationship between us, and so I'm turning away from it. Then the next thing is restitution. Restitution is the act of making right whatever it is you made wrong. The way we practice this in our home is we have a couple phrases to help guide us with our kids. So things like, when you mess up, you fess up. Now, you've heard us say that a lot, but I recommend you bring it into your home. It's really helpful. But let's say I've messed up and I've fessed up, but now what? Now what do I do? Well, then you have to make it right in some way or another. So if one of my sons breaks another son of mine's toy, he has to either fix it, usually with my help, and I'm not very helpful in that way. And if we can't fix it, then he has to buy another one or something else that that brother would like in its place. I wanna teach my kids from a very young age that we don't just get to do things and get away with it. We actually have to take responsibility for it. And that's how we repair things when we break them. And relationships are no different. In fact, it's even more so. This is such a big deal that the Bible addresses this. I got it wrong last service, but if you go look in Leviticus chapter six, it spells all this out. I know Leviticus is kind of a boring book in general. It's very hard to read. It's lots of laws and rules. But Leviticus 6 is super powerful because it spells this out. If you've deceived or you've committed fraud or you've in any way been deceptive in any way and that benefited you, your job not to go back to the government. Your job is not to go through someone else. Your job is to go directly to the person that you wronged. You return or replace what it is you stole, took, deceived, defrauded, whatever it is that you give it. Then you give 20% more on top of that, you're like, wow, that's a lot. I know, because the Bible is trying to spell out for us what a big deal this is to God and to his heart. Jesus is building on this very idea. In the Gospels, he literally says, if you are at the altar and you are making a sacrifice and it dawns on you that somebody has something against you, Leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and be reconciled to them, then come back and present your offering. Now, this is crazy powerful because depending on exactly where a person lived in Jesus' day and where they had to travel to even get to a place where they could make a sacrifice, it could be anywhere from a half a day's journey to days and days of journey if they had to say, go into Jerusalem, exactly what's going on. Now, Jesus is looking back at all the sacrifices, but especially Leviticus chapter six, when he's saying this. You can imagine, let's say I've wronged someone and I know I did it, but I got away with it. And I'm feeling super convicted because God sees everything. And I know that I didn't really get away with it just because they didn't catch me and I got to make it right. So God had a, a way to make it right. I could take a little lamb or whatever it is and I could take it in for this guilt offering and I could take it in and say, I have been wrong. I have hurt others. I have sinned against God by how I treated them. Now, Jesus is saying, let's say you get in there and it suddenly dawns on you, you're just trying to get away with one and they don't know what you did. Take your sacrifice. In fact, just leave it at the altar. There's no layaway plan in the temple. It's not that you can look at the priest, right, and say, oops, can you hold on to this for me? He's gonna, what am I supposed to do with this? I want you to picture, uh, somebody gave me this analogy this morning. I want you to picture your Disneyland. 
because the line to get into this would have been huge depending on whether we're talking about the temple in Jerusalem or a local synagogue. So if you're talking about the temple in Jerusalem, the line would have been massive. Imagine when you're at Disney, right? If you've ever been to Disney and you weaved your way up and you're waiting in line for your turn to offer your sacrifice to confess and repent and be restored to God and it's time to do it. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit convicts you and says, you know the reason you're doing this is because you did that. You need to go make that right. Now, how many of you, if you get up to It's a Small World after a two-hour wait, after cutting somebody else in line, you're gonna, you know what? I'm gonna go to the back of the line. I'm gonna leave this here. I'm gonna go. But Jesus is telling us this because he wants us to do this with urgency, immediacy. See, what happens is we start trying to play the hide game, like, I'm scared, I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed, I'm afraid. I don't know how it's gonna work out. I can't control the outcomes. That's why we must, in humility, put all of us into all of God's hands, bow low and say, I wronged you. And you have the right to do whatever you want, but I've wronged you. The best example in the New Testament, besides Jesus, is a guy named Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, and as a tax collector, he worked for Rome, even though he was Jewish, which meant that he could charge whatever Rome asked him to charge for the taxes, and he could add a usury fee on top of that. And and the Jews hated the tax collectors because they were one of us who betrayed us. But they got really rich off the backs of the commoners. And this guy named Zacchaeus meets Jesus, and one day he meets Jesus. Jesus talks to him about God's love and truth and grace, and he's so moved, and he's so powerfully stirred in his heart that right there at lunch, he stands up and he says this. Zacchaeus stood up and he said to the Lord, that's Jesus, to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. We're gonna start studying Luke in about three weeks and we're not gonna finish till we're done. I think it's gonna take most of next year. And when we get to this, I'll go deeper than I have time to go now. But scholars tell us it would have left Zacchaeus almost guaranteed bankrupt. You're like, well, then why would God call him to do that? Because he's trying to restore what he broke. And Zacchaeus understands a critical truth that we struggle with, and that is this, this world is not our home. We are literally just passing through. And whether it's a tragedy, like a baby dies at five days old, and everybody goes, that's terrible, it's true, Or whether you're 95, everybody goes, that's a life well lived. That's a long life. A hundred years is nothing. It's a drop in the ocean compared to eternity. It's a drop in an infinite amount of water. That's what eternity is. And the scriptures tell us if you weigh this decision and you weigh it like, is it worth it? You'll never come to the right conclusion because you aren't weighing it in light of eternity. And God is watching in his rewards. Now think about that for this next verse. Genesis 33, verse 16 says, so that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. And that is why the place is called Sukkoth. A couple things. First of all, at the end of their conversation, Esau urges Jacob, Jacob, okay, fine. I'll take all this stuff. You don't know it to me, but fine. I'll take it. I'll take it. Come with me. Come back home with me. And Jacob says, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. Uh, but I'm with my, my wife, my servants, my little kids. They're going to be really slow. You go with your 400 men. We'll meet you there. Now, is Jacob being honest? I don't think so. I think this is where his flesh is really getting in the way. Because while Esau goes back on to Edom, Jacob settles in Sukkoth. Now, the reason this is powerful, 
beyond the fact that what's probably happening in the story is he doesn't trust Esau. So even though there's a, there's a beginning of a restoration build, it's not fully complete yet. Even though that's happening, what's more powerful is the fact that Sukkoth becomes planted eventually where he ends up is right outside the promised land. And this word Sukkoth, this is where like, if I had another hour, I know, every time I say that, somebody comes up and says, go ahead. I'm like, yeah, I know, yeah. That's you and five people. The word Sukkoth, becomes part of the Hebrew culture. The Hebrews have these feasts that go on year round. One of them is the Feast of Sukkoth. And you learn about it later in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy because what we're learning here goes to what I just said. Jacob doesn't build himself a permanent home. Jacob lives in tents. Jacob is moving around like a foreigner because he's waiting for God to say, now the promised land is yours. And it doesn't even happen yet in his generation. It happens much further on down the road when the Israelites come in, but then they're kicked out of the land because they can't get it right either. And all of the Bible story is telling us we are dying for, longing for, a land that we could call home, but that land is already and it's not yet because we find that land not in a physical location. We find that land wherever we go with our faith in Jesus Christ. Because yeah, because the temple of God is here and now in us. And this is powerful because Jacob is just giving us this model. This world is not your home. Don't get comfortable. Hang on loosely to things like houses and cars and clothes. Hang on tightly to things that last forever, like God and people and relationships. Because all that other stuff, moth and rust will destroy. All that other stuff will be burned up in a fire. All that other stuff can be lost or stolen or taken. Who cares? But the things that matter are the things of God himself. All right. Here's what I want to leave you with, though. Notice in Jacob and Esau, repentance and restitution does not always equal restoration. It just builds the bridge for others to walk across. So see, if you have in your mind, I'll do this if, X plus Y equals Z, then you won't take the right next step. The right next step is obedience to whatever God is telling you to do. I need to own this. I need to make it right. And I trust God. I'm putting my all and his all to work it out. This is why Paul says in Romans, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What I wanna do is I wanna take you into communion right now. So go ahead and pull out your communion cup. Because while Jacob and Zacchaeus are phenomenal examples for us, the best example is Jesus himself. But here's what I want you to do in communion today. If you have business you need to do with God, he's revealing to you here as you come to the sacrifice. There's somebody you've wronged or somebody you've hurt. I just want you to thank God for his forgiveness. John tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and will forgive us. So whenever we come into a moment of repentance with God, we know that he will forgive us. But that's not the end of it. I want you to ask yourself this question. Is there someone that I have wronged that God is calling me to go to repent and seek restoration? 
And maybe for some of you, the answer is no, or maybe God will reveal that later this week. I only challenge you, don't let your pride make the decision before you ask the question. Don't let your pride get in the way. Kill that thing and let Jesus answer. Because Jesus considered this world not his home. He was here passing through so he could bring us to an eternal home with God. So as you take this bread and you take this juice this morning, I wanna encourage you to hear the heart of love that God has for you, but the heart that he has for restoration with those that you have sinned against. And then just ask him, God, what do you want me to do about this? Let me start a prayer and I'll hand it to you. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. It's through the blood on the cross, through his body on the cross, that we've been made right with you. We are restored to you. So God, I just ask for you to speak to us right now, your love and your encouragement. May the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. Speak to us. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world of sin and to bring about righteousness. So Holy Spirit, stir in this place, move in us, that God, we would be responsive to whatever you're calling us to do, no matter how hard and no matter how much we must humble. And we ask this in Jesus' name.